Hi, I'm Pastor James, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church in Hillsborough, Oregon. Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. Our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so each weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please visit our website at www.isunrise.com, I-S-O-N-R-I-S-E.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you, grow along the journey of life with others, develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost, and then learn how to lead other people to know Jesus Christ. Now, on to our weekend message. So Mary Beth and I have three amazing boys, and uh, they love questions. Uh, they love some things that I love, and one of the things as a dad, you get you know passionate about you. You know, will they love the right sports team, or will they love the right movies and things like that? Uh, but I was so pleased a number of years ago when they fell in love with Calvin and Hobbes. That was very pleasing to my heart. And uh, I got some Calvin and Hobbes for you today. Uh, they're old, but they're good, and I love the ones where Calvin asks his father. Scientific questions. Those are brilliant. Take a look at this one. Dad, how do bank machines work? Well, let's say you want $25. You punch in the amount, and behind the machine, there's a guy with the printing press who makes the money and sticks it out the slot. Sort of like the guy who lives up in our garage and opens the door? Exactly. (laughs) Or how about this one? Dad, will you explain the theory of relativity to me? I don't understand why time goes slower at great speed. Well, it's because you keep changing time zones. See, if you fly to California, you gain three hours on a five-hour flight, right? So if you go at the speed of light, you gain more time because it doesn't take as long to get there. Of course, the theory of relativity only works if you're going west. (laughs) That was not quite an Einstein's theories, okay? Gee, that's not what mom said at all. She must be totally off her rocker. Well, we men are better at abstract reasoning. Go tell her that. <laughs> I love it. Or this one. This is, this is a classic. How do they know the load limit on bridges, Dad? They drive bigger and bigger trucks over the bridge until it breaks. Then they weigh the last truck and rebuild the bridge. Oh, I should have guessed. <laughs> Dear, if you don't know the answer, just tell him. <laughs> Isn't that great? I love it. I love it. Uh, thankfully, my boys never asked me any of those questions. They probably went to Mary Beth for that. But I do love questions. Questions are, are amazing. Questions reveal so much about our wonder, about the things we consider to think about. As, as kids, the question, man, my guys ask, why is the sky blue? That is a great great question. And if you're an existentialist, is there a sky? You know what I mean? But, but the, the questions of life, curiosity questions, I love those. Um, sometimes questions can be a little confusing, like, honey, shouldn't you stop and ask directions? You know, uh, sometimes questions are condemning, such as, do these genes make me look fat? In the words of that great military strategist, Admiral Akbar, it's a trap. All right, man. So be careful. 
Um, but you know, as, as we go through life, we have questions. And as a person who's getting a little older, past 50, you know, you think about the questions and as they evolve over time. When I was in college, the questions were the big ones like, what's the purpose of life? Why am I here? You know, what's, what is my strategy? How am I going to live this out? Does God have someone for me to marry? What is going to be the purpose of my life? Is there a specific job? I mean, those are important questions. But as we go on with life, I've discovered that oftentimes our questions reflect a bit of frustration or maybe disappointment with life. Questions like, uh, you know, is this all there is? You know, is there supposed to be more? Guys at midlife crisis, you know, is this all that I've worked for? Um, you know, questions that reveal maybe disappointment in God. Like, how could you let this happen? I went to church all these years and then, you know, fill in the blank. There are questions of faith, but there's a lot of questions in life. And I love questions. And every year I read through the Bible. And so I just, I stuck it on, on Facebook, but it's a picture of this Bible my mom got me. This will be 30 years ago now. It's my 30th time reading through the Bible, a daily walk. And you just read through the Bible, you discover questions. I'd encourage you, it's a good year to start reading the Bible. Uh, and just open one and go get a reading plan. But I remember reading the very first question in the Bible. I don't know, you might know it. You might be familiar with it. It's a great question. God asks this question. And it's, Adam, where are you? Now that's a cool question when you think about it. Because... If he's God, he already knows the answer. Okay, all right. So uh, this is not one of those trick questions, you know, but this is one of those questions that reveal more than the question. So here's a story. Adam and Eve are in the garden. They sinned against God. They were naked, but not ashamed because they were in a perfect relationship with each other, relationship with God. And then sin entered into the equation as they rebelled against God. There's a break. Now there is nakedness and shame. Now there is hiding. Adam and Eve are hiding behind some bushes. Now what a cool picture. As if you could hide from God. But that's what they're trying to do. But that's what we do because of our sin. Because of our brokenness. We hide. We feel shame. We feel this isolation. So we withdraw. So that nobody will see our nakedness. Because it does fill us with shame. And none of us want to feel shame. And then God shows up as he did walking through the garden. And he asked the question, Adam, where are you? Not because God didn't know, but because Adam needed to know. It's a great, very penetrating question. Where are you? Now, Adam ended up blaming, which is one of the other responses we do. The woman you gave me, God. That's not a good thing to say, man. Um, but it is one of our responses to deflect the light shining on us because we don't want people to see our sinfulness. We don't even want to admit that we have brokenness. But God asked the question because Adam needed to come step out of the darkness into the light and go, I'm here, God. This is where I am. That's a really good question. Some of you, maybe that could be your question to think about today. Where am I? I mean, I know physically where I'm at, but where am I? Where am I in life? Where am I in business? Where am I in my marriage or my singleness? Or my family, or my parenting. Where am I with my goals? Where am I with my pursuits? 
It's a great question. Now, you kind of fast forward to the Bible, and there's this other really good penetrating question. And it's asked of a man, a prophet, Elijah, who had just had this amazing encounter where he goes to this mountain, and all these prophets of Baal are killed, and God wins the day, and, and he's now being pursued by this evil queen, Jezebel. And so he's running, 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 and he finally gets all the way down to the very desert, the wilderness, the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, it's called. And he gets up the top, and he's crying out to God. And God asks this question of Elijah. It's great. What are you doing here? Talk about disappointing. Um, well, I showed up to see you, you know, none of us, none of us, as we greet people on Sunday morning, go, uh, what are you doing here? It's like, well, if you don't know, I'm leaving, you know, it's like, what are you doing here, Elijah? Why are you here? Why are you in this place? What are you looking for? Elijah? God tells him this whole story about passion about ministry. There's a lot of other prophets. There's this whole work to be done. Go, go do it. What are you doing here? You're hiding. It's a disappointing moment in life. Great victory, horrible depression in that moment. What are you doing here? I love those questions. That's a great question. Some of you, that's a good question. Not physically, spatially, but what are you doing here? Why are you in the place you are? I mean, you could go through the Bible and you could see lots of questions. We're going to wrap up the book of Matthew eventually in 2032. Um, no, <laughs> uh, this year, and uh, it'll be a year and a half through Matthew and start in December last year. And we're going to end after Easter. And shock, I'm just going to reveal now, spoilers, Jesus rises from the grave on Easter. And um, I know. You'll see it. It's going to be good. And then a week or so later, we're done with Matthew. And then we're going to roll into the Psalms. We'll spend the spring and summer in Psalms. Love the Psalms. Psalms have tons of questions. Like, why are you so downcast, oh, my soul? That's a great question. Or this one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a really good question. And if you've never asked that question, you haven't gotten to the depths of your relationship with God yet. It's a good, safe question. Jesus asked that one on the cross. There's a lot of questions in the Bible. But today, I want to take a look at a question that shows up in our next passage through Matthew. And I think, I think it's a great question. First of all, because Jesus asks it. But it's another penetrating question to cause people to step outside of themselves and ask a bigger question. So if you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 20, we're finishing the book uh, in months, but we're finishing this chapter. So we're getting closer to the end. Chapter 20 and uh, 29 on and page 751 in your chair Bible. And so a little background why we're here. We're walking through Matthew. Matthew's showing the Jewishness of Jesus. A lot of culture, a lot of background, a lot of things that Mark and Luke and John, the other gospel story writers of Jesus don't include. And so it's, it's a great book. I love it. So Jesus has done all this ministry. To the crowds, he's healed people, he's taught people, done some amazing things. Uh, he's also discipled his guys and gals, and so he's made these disciples, and he's going to turn it over to 12 of them. He's on the way to Jerusalem. We've seen that the last couple weeks. And as he's making his way from the north, which is Galilee, where most of his ministry occurred, down the Jordan River area, back up to Jerusalem... Uh, he, he makes this journey to the cross. So he ministers to the crowd for several years, and then he heads to the cross. And everything has been about this mission that's going to be completed on the cross, which is salvation. The Bible says that God went to the cross 
His son Jesus went to the cross and God himself died for our sins. That's what we're going to get to. It's going to take a number of months to get there, but this is where we're at. And so as we walk along this journey, that's on the mind and heart of Jesus. He's going to Jerusalem. And from this time, within days, not even a week, he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be handed over and he's going to be crucified. So a week before his death, a lot of intensity, a lot of emotions, and Jesus is on a journey. And so in Matthew chapter 20, this is where we end up. Starting in verse 29, it says, as Jesus and the disciples left the town of Jericho. Now, I'm going to interrupt a lot of this because there's some things I think we should consider. Jesus has a lot of people with him right now. The crowds have been gathering with him. His disciples are more than 12. There's men and women in the discipleship group. But what we see is that Jesus is going through Jericho. Now, Jericho is a famous biblical town. It's an oasis in a desert down by the Dead Sea. There's a lot of things that go on in Jericho. Uh, It's the first city that falls when the Israelites come in after leaving Egypt and wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because Moses didn't ask directions. And, um, And so what we end up with is this encounter that's not included in Matthew. And I wanted to highlight it. Matthew doesn't record it, but Luke records it. As Jesus is going through Jericho, the crowds are pressing in. People are excited to see Jesus. And this tax collector, not just a tax collector, but the the tax collector of tax collectors, a chief tax collector. If he's on Amway, he's at the top of the pyramid, right? He's got all these people working for him underneath there, okay? He gets wind that Jesus is showing up. And this short guy, Zacchaeus, Wants to see Jesus, but he can't see above the crowd. He's vertically challenged, right? And so he climbs a tree, a sycamore tree, and for the Lord he wanted to see, right? Because that's how the song goes. And as he's up there, the crowd comes, Jesus is coming, Jesus stops. Talk about a moment. And he looks up at Zacchaeus and he says, Zacchaeus, come on down. I'm going to go to your house and we're going to have a meal. Now, here's the thing. Jesus does some really cool things that disrupted the status quo. Jesus frustrated the religious people. In fact, in Luke 15, I've been thinking about that and working through that. Uh, I love that passage. It says at the very beginning that tax collectors and other notorious sinners, the scum of the earth, basically, hang out with Jesus. And, And more than that, it says the religious people start murmuring, muttering to themselves, whispering to themselves. He receives sinners. And I read that again last week. I was just struck, just stopped in my tracks because the, the word receives is more than just welcomes because it is that. But it's like to prepare a table. The most intimate time you could have in that day and age was around a meal. And Jesus had meals with broken, sinful people. And I love that about Jesus, because when people acknowledge they're broken and sinful, they're invited to the table. Religious people wouldn't dare eat with Jesus like that because of all the riffraff that hung out, the scum of the earth, the people that nobody should be around, right? Jesus hangs out with Zacchaeus. And because of that, this tax collector comes to faith in Jesus. He gives all his money away. It's a powerful story. It's a reminder to me and hopefully to you today that on the way to whatever we're doing, which is undoubtedly very important, um, let's not forget the people all around us. I have a tendency to do that. I'm I'm a fast person. I go places. I do things quickly, you know, and I'm quick to forget that there are people all around me. This is Jesus now. He's going to the cross. The main mission, the reason he was born is to go to the cross to die for our sins. And last week on the way there, there's a guy that needs him. 
a lost, broken, sinful person that everybody else despised and rejected. And Jesus stops and he looks him in the eye, penetrates his heart and says, Zacchaeus, come on down. We're going to have a meal together. I hope that in the busyness of all that we do, even spiritual stuff, we're not too busy to stop because there are people all around us. Like I said, I have that problem. Last night I was here. It was New Year's Eve. I thought I'd strategically place myself here during the service time. And um, nobody showed up, which was great because we had emailed all that and Facebooked it. And somebody read something. That was good. Uh, great. And um, if my boys would only know. Um, and, and, and so I'm here and uh, the shelter's going to start. It's freezing outside, literally. Starting to snow. And... Uh, I walk through and Flint, he's leading our shelter, or at least working it right now in Annie's absence. And he's got some guys and gals in to help set up. And it's just it's beautiful to see our homeless friends come in. And uh, I see this guy, I don't know him, he's this big coat, and I just go give him a big bear hug. It's like, and I just go, man, I'm glad you're here, welcome. And it was a little, you know, he didn't hug me back because that's kind of weird for a dude to hug a dude. But it's like, you know what? There's a person in there. There's a person said hi to his wife and they're setting up then i'm hanging out here and again i'm busy i got stuff to do i got god stuff to do jesus stuff to do i got all kinds of excuses too right and i i look and na starting and there's two gals there and the tables aren't set up i'm like okay stop you idiot go in the room and say hi so i welcome them get to know their name set up tables with them start talking with them ask a gal it's her first time here and uh, i said man this is awesome glad you're here at na it's great got some great leaders for na got some wonderful believers that lead this ministry and we just start talking and i go i hope you have a great time i walk away i know two people's names and i don't know the story but i know this that i i'm too busy for that right i got important stuff to do jesus never was too busy for people Maybe our resolution this year would be to stop, not just slow down, but stop and see the people all around us. Because on the way to doing our really important thing, ministry could happen. Okay, back to sermon, back to this sermon, actually. It says, as Jesus and the disciples left the town of Jericho, a large crowd followed behind. Now, it's customary in the Middle East, even still today, when a dignitary shows up for people to hang around. It's kind of like what we would do if we were to see an important person arriving. So we have dignitaries that show up. People go to the airport and stand around and they walk off the plane. The, the bigger the crowd, the more important the person, essentially. And so that's what happened at the time of Jesus. Um, and so people would crowd around. They wanted to see. Even This is true. Even today... Uh, and I read a story about this this last week that a dignitary was going to a town in Israel and uh, they were miles out, like four miles out of the town. The crowd had already come out to meet the dignitary. Dignitary turned the car off and everybody got behind and pushed the car into the town. It was an honor to receive an important person. And so this town is a bustle and hustle of activity and the crowd is pressing around. They want to see and welcome Jesus. But two blind men were sitting beside the road. Now, um, blind men, you know, it's a kind of a common occurrence at that day and age. There's a lot of illnesses that would result in people being blind. People could be born blind. Jesus does a lot of healing of blind people. But one of the key parts of the culture is that as a community, you welcomed the poor around you. And it was almost a badge of honor to have poor around you so that you could always be reminded to show charity 
It was a fascinating occurrence, fascinating scenario. We tend to shuffle those people off and stick them away because they embarrass us, right? Because we don't know what to do with that. And we don't want those poor people around us. We don't want those homeless people around us. We don't want those people with those kind of problems around us. So let's just stick them somewhere else and we can go our merry way without feeling any guilt, right? But in that day and age, even today, there was an honor in a community having some people that were supported by the community. And so people would beg. And if you're maybe lame, maybe paralyzed, maybe missing a limb or something like that, some kind of infirmity, you'd sit there and you might be able to have some kind of employment. Blind person, though, completely out of luck, okay? It's hard to exist in that culture when you're blind. And so these two blind guys are sitting there and they hear catch wind, they don't see it obviously, but they catch wind that Jesus is coming. And when they heard that he was coming that way, they began shouting. And look what they shouted. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Now, uh, the other gospel writers, Mark and Luke, talk about this. And, and, and they, they account that it was so loud, it annoyed the people. They kept shouting louder and louder and louder. Imagine that, right? You know, imagine, you know, like they're the lone 49er fan in a Seahawks stadium. And you're louder than them, right? Which would be impossible, okay? But imagine that. It's like, you're annoying me. Be quiet. That was the response of the crowd. Because that's annoying when someone's shouting out their problems, when they're crying out. And so that's what they say. They say, be quiet. The crowd yelled at them, but they only shouted louder. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. I want to think about that for just a minute. What do they say? They are crying out to Jesus. Do they know Jesus? We don't know. Have they ever seen Jesus? No, because they're blind. Okay, trick question. Have they ever encountered him? We don't know, but they probably heard And so this is what's going on. They have a glimmer of hope. They have a moment where they think, wait a minute, this guy might be able to do something. Now, here's why we know this. First of all, they call him Lord. Now, Lord in that culture could be sir. That's a good, good kind of identifier of respect and honor. And Lord was sir in a lot of ways, but not when you put it with what follows. Lord in this context is God. Calling him, respecting him as someone who could do something about the situation. Because they call him the son of David. We've seen it a number of times. The son of David is this idea that he's the king. He's going to be the Messiah who comes. We're going to welcome the king. He's going to come on in and he's going to save his people from their sins. In fact, next week, don't miss it. We're going to see Jesus come into Jerusalem. And as he's coming into Jerusalem, as he rounds his way around Jericho, up around this Mount of Olives, he comes in. The crowd goes wild. People stream out of the city. Everybody gathers to welcome the king. And they throw their coats down and they wave their palm branches and they shout out, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us now. Hosanna, Hoshana, to the son of David. Jesus is the Messiah. He's coming in. So these guys shout out, God, Savior, help us. That's an amazing thing to shout out. Now, why would they do that? Because nowhere in the Old Testament does anybody receive their sight. There's a lot of healings, a lot of miracles from Moses to Elijah, Elisha, a lot of things go on. But there's not one recorded experience of a blind person receiving their sight. There is a cool passage, though, in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah says this. I really like this. 35, 4 to 6. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear. 
That's a good one. I remember hearing uh, Pastor Rick Warren down in Southern California say that God says, fear not or do not fear at least 365 times in the Bible. That's one for every day. All right. So if you have fear, do not fear. All right. No fear. All right. No fear. Do not fear for your God is coming to destroy your enemies. He is coming to save you. That's what they're crying out. And when he comes, speaking of Messiah, the son of David, when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. This is an Old Testament prophecy. Six, seven hundred years before Jesus is walking on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. And for whatever reason, these guys believe it. And they shout out, Son of David, Lord, save us, change us, heal us, open up life to us. There was the firm belief in that culture that God cared and God was going to show up and God was going to deliver his people. And so that's what happens. Look at the rest of the story. When Jesus heard them, he stopped and called. What do you want me to do for you? That's our question. Adam, where are you? Elijah, what are you doing here? Blind guys, what do you want? (laughs) Seems like an obviously boneheaded question, right? (laughs) It's like, again, God, are you sure you know you're asking the right question? What do you want me to do for you, right? It's like asking a starving person, would you like a meal, you know? A shivering homeless person, would you like a bed and a warm place to sleep. You know? Asking a single person, do you want a date? You know what I mean? Do you want to do something? Going to a college fair, going to a job fair, do you want a job? <laughs> you know? Going up with somebody, the grass is this tall, do you want me to mow your lawn for free? <laughs> it's like, why would Jesus ask such an obvious question? An obvious question. Well, therein lies the reality. Is that they have to speak it out. They have to declare it. Look what it says here. Lord, we want to see. We want to see. Now, within the words here, within the words, the implication not see for the first time, but in the language, it's see again. And so there's an indication here that these guys at some point had sight. They had seen the clouds. They had seen the sky. They had not just felt the warmth of the sun. They had seen the rays of the sun. They had not just heard the rustle of the leaves and the wind. They had seen it with their very eyes. And it's very common in that culture, in that day and age, even today in undeveloped countries, uh, for people to have eye diseases that are curable. There are mercy ships that go all along the coast of Africa today. And one of the greatest things they do is they just heal people of very basic diseases that you and I, we just go to Fred Meyer pharmacy to get a medicine for, right? We go to Walgreens and we get the answer in a bottle, in a salve. They don't have that. So these guys at one point had seen it and now they want to see again. And yet Jesus asks the very obvious question. What is it you want? Maybe that's a question for you. Maybe that's a question for me. What is it we really want God to do? Have you ever sat down, thought about it, prayed about it, gathered some friends? What does God really want for my life? What am I asking God to do for my life? Now, I mean, 
we are like on the other end of the spectrum of health, wealth, and prosperity. But I do believe that we need to say it. We need to verbalize it. We need to get it out. Not for God's sake, but for our sake. And we need to be bold enough to speak it. This is what I want God to do. Some of you never put down a prayer request. You need to put down a prayer request. This is what I want God to do. And you need to share that prayer request so other people can join and pray with you. That you are not alone on this journey. What is it you want God to do for you today? Let me jump back quickly to that text. Jesus felt sorry for them. He felt compassion. He felt compassion for them. And he touched their eyes. I love it. That the Son of God, God in the flesh, would touch unclean things. Lepers, beggars, street people. And he wouldn't just speak it. He would touch them. And instantly they could see. Now look at this. And then they followed him. I love that. Then they followed him. Then they followed him. You know, in that culture, very much like our culture, there was an undercast of people, a lower strata of people. We'll, we'll say they were not middle class, all right? They were not upwardly mobile. Most of us are in that scenario middle class, upwardly mobile. Most of us have a job or have the means to provide a job. We have a house, we have cars, we have things like that, okay? We've got that. That's great. There's nothing wrong with that, okay? But there's also a lower caste, we might call it, underneath that, that oftentimes we don't want to look down and see because we're looking down. And we feel awkward and we don't know what to do about it. We don't have answers. And we, we, we kind of drive by them or we avert our eyes because we don't want to see them. Because it's a little awkward for all of us. And so we just pretend that those people don't exist. Because those people have problems we don't have answers to, right? I'm so thankful that Jesus didn't treat us like that. We were the poor. We were the naked. We were the ashamed. We were the lost. At Sunrise, we have a heart for what we call the least, the last, and the lost. And, And it's not just a bleeding liberal heart kind of thing. It's from Jesus Jesus lived this way and he stopped to love the hurting and the broken. And the early church did it just in full force. One of the struggles that I think we have today, and I say we as maybe middle class people, we as Americans, we as Westerners, is that we shape our lives for comfort. We build safety and security around ourselves. And, you know, in cynical way, we begin to believe that lie. Because it is a lie. It could all fall apart in a heartbeat, right? Everything could crash. And we build this cocoon around ourselves so that we're comfortable. And we do that. And I, I like air conditioning and heat as much as the next guy, right? I do that. That's fine. But what we do is we bring that into all aspects of our lives. You know what we do? We bring it into our churches. We bring it into our churches. And you know what we do? We end up in this scenario where we want a church that ministers to us. I get it. There's some reality and I understand that. Okay. But we, if we're not careful, we will wrap ourselves with this cocoon of what is God doing for me versus what does God want me to do for him and for the world? And we could easily hop around, shop around, find churches that are better. You, I guarantee you, I'll lay a thousand bucks in the line. You can find a church better at sunrise in a hundred feet of here. I'm sure. You know what I mean? It's uh, churches everywhere. They're everywhere here. Okay. 
If you want a better preacher than me, I'll give you a list of five guys I know. I'd be going to their churches if I didn't work here, right? You know, it's okay. Seriously, you know, that's fine. That's not what it's about. But for some people, that's what it's about because I want to go to church and be fed. I get it. I get it. I understand that. If you want to try to find a church that has better worship than us, you will never find it. Because Pastor Aaron's best worship leader that pays the senior pastor to say good things about him. Right? Right. Now, 20 bucks this service. Last service was only 10, so he didn't get as big a prop. But no, no. I guarantee you can find better worship. You can find better buildings, better parking spots. Dare I say it, better coffee, better... You can find it if that's what you're looking for. But if that's what you're looking for, you're a consumer. And if you're a consumer, here's this. All eyes are on you. Mostly your eyes. That's not how Jesus lived. Jesus lived in a culture that he created where he looked out to other people. The Old Testament, the summation of all that God wants. It's on our walls for crying out loud. To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. Can I say it again? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. Do justice. Live in a way that fights for justice. But you love to be merciful in how you do that, and then you walk humbly before God. That's what God wants for us. And that's not about us. That's about God and about others. Let me wrap it up. This is kind of the summation. This is Jesus' question. What do you want me to do for you? Adam, where are you? Elijah, what are you doing here? Blind guys, what do you want me to do for you? Obvious questions, deep questions. I think the story still speaks to us. For one, have you ever cried out for Jesus to save you? Have you ever verbalized the words? I'm not talking about are you going to church, but have you ever stopped to consider the truth, what the Bible says, that we're all broken, we're all filled with sin, we're all separated from God by birth, by nature, by actions. We do things that remove us from the presence of God. And we can't fix that. That's why Jesus came. God in the flesh to unite us in an opportunity to once again be connected to God. On the cross, his death paid for your sins and my sins. And now when we confess him as Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, we're saved. That's what Jesus is inviting us to, is to to do that, is to believe in him as Lord and Savior. To say, Lord, son of David, Lord, the one who's in charge, son of David, the one who's going to save me. I want you in my life. I want to follow you. So first of all, if you cried out for Jesus to save you, a lot of us, most of us, has Jesus opened your spiritual eyes? That's the question. Has Jesus opened your spiritual eyes? If so, are you following him? Not just are you going to church. Not just are you reading your Bible. Or are you following Jesus? Now, at the risk of sounding really simple, how do I follow Jesus? Well, step one would be open the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, just read them. That's a good resolution for the year, 2017, that you will have read the four Gospels. And they're beautiful. And as you read them, ask, who am I in the story? What is Jesus doing? Can I do that? Some of the things I can't do. I have yet to raise dead people, you know, I get my, you know, middle school kid out of bed, but that's as close to raising a dead person. You know what I mean? Sorry. Uh, you know, who am I in this story? In this story, who am I? Am I the crowd? That's a little annoyed that someone is interrupting my wonderful worship of Jesus. Because I got this wonderful thing with me and Jesus and you're, 
you're interrupting that. You're embarrassing me because we don't have time for you. Are you a blind guy? Blind gal crying out, Lord, save me. Are you in the situation where Jesus is? You're stopping to love and serve people where they are. Hey, there's one thing that I didn't tell you about this story because Matthew doesn't tell us, but Mark tells us. Mark tells us the name of one of the guys. It's a really cool thing. He says his name is Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus the blind beggar. Now, in the common street language called Aramaic, Bar meant son of. So, for example, Abba means father. So, Bar Abba is son of the father. So, Barabbas is son of the father. All right? Ironically speaking, Barabbas was the son of the father. The crowd chose over Jesus, the real son of the father. Bar Timaeus, son of Timaeus, is all Mark says. In Aramaic, Timaeus means ritually, spiritually unclean. Filthy. Can you imagine that kind of a name? Thanks, Mom. Thanks, Dad. Son of filth. Loving that one. Try again. This guy has this name. Whether it's his given name or it's a nickname, he is known as son of filth, son of unclean, son of dirt. Not son of God, not child of God, not son with hope, but son of dirt, son of filth. I was reading this morning through the creation story, Genesis 1 and 2. My friends, just because God made us from dust doesn't mean we should treat people like dirt. Because they're living, breathing people made in the image of God. And Bartimaeus was made in the image of God, even though outwardly he was unclean. His very name unclean. His very action or his limitation made him unclean. And Jesus showed up and looked at the son of dirt as he cried out to the son of David and he made him a son of God. And you and I could be sons and daughters of God if we just cry out to him. Have you cried out to him? And if you have, are you following him? And are you taking steps to be like him? Let's pray. So God, we lift up just this thought to you, Bartimaeus. On our own, that's who we are. That's our name. Son of unclean, daughter of unclean. And yet when Jesus shows up, the son of David, the Lord, the Messiah, the King, the one who would go to the cross for us, he makes us a child of God, a daughter of God, a son of God. If we cry out, if we call out for you to save us. So God, may we do that today. May we cry out and verbalize and vocalize the words, God, we want to see. We want to see with spiritual eyes. We want to see you. We want to know you. We want to have a walk and a relationship with you. And God, we want to follow you and be like you. So Father, as we begin this year, I pray that in the midst of all of the activity, even religious activity, there would just be this hunger in us to see you more clearly, to follow you more closely, and to know you more intimately. We pray in your name. Amen.